0: welcome back to who's there i'm your host allison if you're new here thank you for joining us this is a podcast where i talk to a new horror fan every week because i hope to destigmatize what it means to be a horror movie fan because most of us are just regular people who like the adrenaline rush of being scared for some reason and here we delve into those reasons thank you for the warm welcome back last week i hope you enjoyed my conversation with sarah lyons and it was our third anniversary too when i launched the episode which i totally forgot to mention But this week on the podcast, I have film professor and filmmaker Chris Vanderkay on the chat. He has written four books on the history and philosophy of the genre of genre film and three genre novels. His feature film script, The Redemption of Henry Myers, was produced and premiered on the Hallmark Movie Channel in 2014. He talked to me all about his theories in horror movies, including a super interesting one that all films are technically horror films. One last thing before we get into this episode, if you love the show and haven't left us a review on iTunes yet, I'd be so grateful if you could take a second to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and subscribe to our feed wherever you listen to us. Thank you to everyone who's already left us a review. It's so appreciated as it really helps people to find us. I think I've rambled enough, so let's get into this episode with Chris Vanderkay. Hey, Chris, how are you?
1: Doing good, thank you so much for having me
0: on. Oh, thank you so much for being here. Um, do you wanna start by telling everyone a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, so my name is uh, Chris Kay. Uh, I'm a bit of a, a, I guess you would say a nomad in the world of horror. I've written a few books, uh, nonfiction books on the history and philosophy of genre film focused primarily on horror. Uh, I used to be a professor of filmmaking and screenwriting at the University of Tampa. And I just finished um, a found footage film that we're seeking distribution for currently. Uh, which is a horror film, horror comedy. So yeah, so I, I I try to dabble in as many different avenues of horror as is humanly possible.
0: Awesome. Wow. That sounds like a fun course that you taught.
1: Yeah. Well, it, w- it was not officially a horror course, but I tried to squeeze as much horror as possible into it. Um, I have an operating theory that every film is actually a horror film, but uh, But uh, yeah, that's so that's how I convinced the students that we why there was 60 percent of the movies were horror films. So I said, they're all really horror films, guys. So don't get hung up on it.
0: (laughs) Uh, Well, we will have to talk about that theory later. But first things first, what's your favorite scary movie?
1: So uh, it's tied. There are two films that uh, have been in my top four films for as long as I can remember. The first one is Pontypool which is a small Canadian, uh, I guess I can say zombie film. That's not spoiling a huge amount, but it's, um, it's a fantastic film. It all takes place in a single location. It costs less than a million dollars. And yet it's one of the most beautifully photographed, uh, horror films I've ever seen. And then the other one I love is a very small indie film. The first film by director Perry Blackshear called they look like people. Um, and it's a, a three-hander. There's only three people pretty much in the entire film. And it's basically about, um, it's about non-toxic masculine friendships and about how to help people in your life who are struggling with mental illness, but it's also just a really tense movie that spent very little money and did an amazing job with what little budget they had.
0: Oh, that sounds amazing. I've never seen it, but I think I've heard of it, but I will have to move it up on my watch list.
1: Yeah, for sure. He And, and the same team of three actors and the director, Perry Blackshear, have done three movies together. So if you like the first one, it gives you a trilogy of films to visit, so...
0: Oh, awesome. I have seen Pontypool. I finally watched that last year. So that was very good. Yeah.
1: And it's I always say your mileage may vary. Not everybody loves it as much as I do, but I just think it's a really accomplished movie for you would never know it was as inexpensive as it was. And and the lead role in that is just fantastic. The sort of the the grizzled radio guy who ends up being sort of accidentally the hero of the movie, although you would never expect him to be the hero of really anything.
0: (laughs) So how did you first fall in love with the horror genre?
1: Well, so I I was raised very strict, uh, fundamentalist Christian upbringing. In fact, my father was a minister for many years in the Southern Baptist Church. So if that gives you any idea of how little exposure I had to horror. Um, So my experience first getting into anything scary was really there was sort of an era of Disney and children's films, sort of like the dark Disney era, where it was stuff like Watcher in the Woods and Escape from Witch Mountain, the original Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. I really gravitated towards stuff like that because it was dark and weird and like a little bit scary, but it still got past my parents' radar. So I was able to see it. So that was the only sort of socially acceptable way to get into that stuff when I was a kid. And then as soon as I was old enough to rent movies on my own, like it was a free for all. And, you know, so it was great because once I was old enough to understand what horror movies were and and how to get them myself, I started with all the great. So I saw like Alien, Halloween, you know, like all the, all the big titles that I had missed for the first 14, 15 years of my life. So...
0: Wow. Um, since you grew up in a very fundamentalist, uh, church community, um, what do you think of like religious horror? Do you ever gravitate towards that? Or is it just too, like too real for you?
1: Oh, no, no. I love it. So the thing is uh, like, I have, I've since parted ways, not only with the belief system, but with a lot of the people who put that into my life. And I have no issues against anyone who wants to believe, but the thing I love about using that in film is, is, uh, Most of the time when you're talking in film, uh, especially in horror film, you're talking about stuff that is uh, theoretical, it's abstract, like very rarely is anything in a horror movie actually going to happen in your life, but it's representative of something that you fear, some sort of, you know, deep seated issue. And the thing I love about religious horror, Christian horrors, whether you're a believer and you think it's literal, um, or as most people where they watch it as uh, sort of... um, Allegorical. I think it's still really powerful to use because there are so many different ways you can use something as simple as demonic possession to tap into what you personally are going through. Whether it's something like addiction or struggling with battling your family or mental illness, like I love the idea that something as simple and iconic as The Exorcist can be a stand-in for so many different things that people go through and struggle with. That's what I've always been fascinated with by horror is how much it's actually talking about our real lives, even though the things are ostensibly not real.
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Um, one of my favorite, rarely not as widely seen horror movies is Red State, which is yes. religious horror. I love it. It's so oh my good. god.
1: That that movie maybe has one of my favorite monologues ever captured on screen. Michael Parks, the the uh sermon that he gives. And there's the sheet over you can't see yeah. what's inside of the sheet. You just hear this, and as the monologue goes on and on, the sermon goes on and on, you really start to see where it's headed, and then it just becomes like a It's terrifying that just a man is speaking because you know what's probably going to be coming at the end of it. Really powerful.
0: Do you have a favorite possession movie?
1: Oh, man. So that's a tough one because because there's so many different kind like technically, you know, Evil Dead 2 or Evil Dead is a possession movie, the same as The Exorcist is. And so it's funny because you can have something like Evil Dead 2 that's so comedic and The Exorcist, which is so terrifying. And they both fall into the same general category. Um, but one of the ones that I love that has, I thought did a really interesting thing with the idea of possession was, uh, it's a film called Ava's Possessions. And the premise of the movie is it's a woman who has recovered from being demon possessed and she's going into a recovery program. Like, so she goes to group therapy for other people who have been possessed and recovered. And so it's a very clever movie, uh, sort of, utilizing the idea of the 12-step program after any kind of addiction but in this case it was because of the uh the possession that she went through and so you see the family that suffered because of the problem that she had and it's a really astute observation on the things that we struggle with and they just use demons as the stand-in for whatever it is
0: oh that's that's really interesting that sort of reminds me of the movie the cured um yeah. which is about after the zombie apocalypse and like after they turn people back from zombies like what they yeah. go through
1: Yeah, in fact, I wrote a book called Life After Death It's the only fiction book that I have put out. And the whole premise of the book was just what happens when the zombie plague is cured, and you have to go back to living life again, and everybody's fine. What happens when the world was a giant gaping open wound for many years, and then we all have to try and just pretend like we're going to go about society again. Um, So I've always been fascinated by that, like the psychic scars that are left. Uh, similar to sort of like a TV show, like The Leftovers, you know, where some huge tragedy that everyone suffered, and then we all sort of have to just figure out how to navigate alongside it. Uh, I love that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, we're kind of living through that now in like a post-pandemic world a little bit. Hundred
1: percent. Yeah, I felt weird when I put that book out. It came out about a month and a half before the the shutdown started happening for the wow. pandemic. It was literally the most wor- the worst timed book imaginable. <laughs> Not only because you know people weren't buying books or going to stores, but also because what I wrote about uh was happening around us and nobody wants to read that while it's happening so you know so the book did not do all that well
0: yeah uh one of my friends she actually came out with a book called get well soon right before the pandemic and it was about plagues throughout time
1: well (laughs) man although they said that contagion did insanely good on streaming when uh when the pandemic first started so who knows sometimes people lean into it sometimes people lean away from it i guess it just depends on your personality
0: yeah, definitely. I've spoken to lots of different people who could wa- only watch pandemic horror and then needed to stay away from it. I was one of those people who was streaming Outbreak and Contagion at the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah. So, yeah. Smart.
1: And alongside while you were washing all of the objects that have been delivered on your porch, right?
0: Yes. Yes. So why do you think that people who seem perfectly sane love the horror genre?
1: So this is interesting. I feel like I maybe I've always for my life looked down the gun from the other end of the barrel because- it's it, here's what I what I see when I think about the human condition. We're immediately born dying, right? From the second we come into the world, we're working our way towards obsolescence. That's uh, so
0: that's so bleak. I love it. It is.
1: It is. But it, it's also realistic. Like none of us is getting out of here alive. Right. And then along the journey, we spend a huge amount of our time hungry, confused, in pain, causing pain to others. Right. Like this is essentially the human condition. It's kind of kind of shitty a lot a lot of the time. It's crazy to me that there are not people who want to watch films that can help them unpack that, that can help them face that in the sort of safe confines of fiction. Like the reason I love horror so much is because it allows me to explore the things that are terrifying to everyone, to be able to see them played out and yet know that I will survive it ultimately so that I can see that kind of thing explored. And what blows my mind is that there are people in the world incurious enough to not want to know about those things that they're going to face on a semi-daily basis. Um, So in a way, I would say, like, it seems to me like this is the same reaction, is to want to seek out material that is comfortable talking about difficult things so that you can prepare yourself in a world where difficult things are going to happen, you know? So for me, I feel like the horror fans are maybe the ones that are probably most well-adjusted because they're the ones that realize what, what kind of, you know, shitty stuff is out there for us and, like, to be prepared and to not be you know, angry or miserable about it, but like just to, to know what you're up against and feel like there's someone else out there who understands it and gets it.
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting um theory. I have I have a cousin who's like much older and very wise. And I, I used to ask her opinion on a lot of things. And I'd be like, I do this or this. She was like, I think you should do this or you could do this. It doesn't matter. We're all going to die in the end. So <laughs>
1: Yeah. Like, oh. Ultimately. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's, that's kind of the best get out of jail free card at the end is like, yeah, I may have made a mistake, but also we're all going to end up in, as dust in a box. So, you know.
0: Yeah. Um. I wonder if my, my love of horror movies is why like death has never really scared me. Um. Which sounds weird, but like I, as long as my cats have a home to go to and don't end up in a shelter, I'm like, whatever. I've lived a great life. It's fine. I'm not suicidal. Anyone listening, not suicidal, but like, you know, as long as my loved ones are taken care of it's
1: 100 well and it's some that's interesting that you touch on that because one of the things i found interesting about so many of the horror fans i know is that there is a huge level of empathy on their part um but and perhaps one of the reasons they're drawn to horror is because they can understand and connect with the people who are suffering on screen it's rare that people watch movies and go you know who i really like is the person that is is, is killing everyone You can like them as like aesthetically, you know, like Jason Voorhees is cool. I don't relate to Jason Voorhees, right? I relate to the characters who are suffering through the circumstance. And I just find it, I find it interesting that the people I know who don't want to watch horror movies, they don't have any interest in that kind of stuff, tend to also kind of be the people who I find don't connect that well with others. Like when they don't want to think about death, it's because they don't want to think about their own death. They don't really care about how it would affect other people. Like they don't want to suffer it themselves. Whereas when I hear horror fans, like you just said, I want as long as someone's there to take care of my family, take care of my pets or whatever, there is that level of empathy of like reaching out and and feeling about other people, which I think is fascinating because we don't really get credit for that as a community.
0: Yeah, that's part of the reason why I started this podcast is because I was like, oh my God, there's so many different types of people who are horror fans. It's not just like weirdos like myself. <laughs> um, so what scares you in horror movies today and in real life?
1: So- In real life, everything scares me. I feel like I've learned in, you know, I'm mid forties. I have learned in my life that everything has the potential to be terrifying, uh, sort of a la final destination. Like if you don't find something scary, you probably just haven't thought enough about it because there's definitely a way in which it is scary. And the great thing about horror films is if you can find one about it, you'll figure out what that is. So we're all, we're all prepared. The more horror movies we watch, the better prepared we are for the world and its terrors. Um, But in film, There are there aren't a lot of uh, there aren't a lot of films that scare me anymore in the in the traditional sense of like jump scare. But there are definitely things that I find existentially terrifying. I have of all of the subgenres, I have the hardest time with cannibalism, uh, with cannibal movies. The reason for that, you would think, is just because it's disgusting. But it's beyond that. I'm a vegetarian, so I'm never worried that I'm accidentally going to be eating another person. So I don't have to worry about that. Hannibal style, you know, where you went to a party and found out later that you had part of one of the people he was holding. But what it does terrify about, about me is even though uh, I'm not still connected to the religious faith, at least the way that I was when I was a child, there is something terrifying about the idea that if you, you know, as a child believed in the idea of a soul, uh, at, at like, you know, the idea of, of you existing be- beyond your death, that like the vessel that you were using is now being devoured by someone else. It's like, well, how do you come back? If you got nothing to come back to, you know, like there's that sort of that weird disconnect of my eight year old self being like, well, if I live forever, but some dude ate me, what am I now? You know, so there's that weird thing between like my adult brain that understands and my child brain that still just doesn't get it. So cannibalism really messes me up.
0: Oh, that's really interesting. Um, I guess there is a um, argument for reincarnation then if you're like, well, my body would die, but my soul would go on. So that's what Yeah, and for it. sure.
1: And the, the adult Chris can understand that. But the eight year old Chris still still can't quite wrap his head around it. First time he saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre, he, he was <laughs> deeply, deeply disturbed by the implications.
0: And how old were you?
1: So I was, you know, I was emotionally mature enough, theoretically, probably okay. would have been 16, 17. Okay. But, you know, not having seen anything as a child, you know, like approaching yeah. that. And then that thing that is that is jumping in. That's diving in the deep end of those kinds of conversations.
0: Yeah, definitely. What's your favorite subgenre in horror?
1: Well, so the my favorite is not technically a subgenre; it's just a format, which is found footage. I love found footage, but I don't call it a subgenre because you can technically make a found footage film in any genre or subgenre. Um, you can have zombie found footage, you can have uh, slashers found footage. So I don't consider that a subgenre, but I love it, and um, uh, I make them all the time. Probably my favorite genre is it's. No one has a name for exactly what it is, which so I just sort of coined it myself as around the the beginning of the 2010s, I've noticed this movement. I call it the new indie weird, which is films that are absolutely have horror elements to them. They're horrific, but they're also sometimes comedic. They're also very strange and they're mostly uncategorizable. And I have this theory that I don't think anybody got together and discussed it, but it, it almost came about as a result of like a backlash against the algorithmification of movies, you know, because of Netflix and how you can go on and you can just click any category and it'll tell you every kind of movie that's in every category. These movies came out that are very difficult to squeeze in in a particular category. Like there's a movie called Septian, which seems like it's sort of a southern gothic dark comedy, but then at about the halfway point, it maybe becomes a possession film, but it's also kind of a mumblecore movie. And and I'm fascinated by that because I feel like. That might be the direction that film has to go in order to be able to remain free of all the stuff we're scared of happening right now, like algorithms, writing movies and creating movies. The only way to to continue to have the the human touch we need is to create things that don't fall so easily into categories. And so there's this category that I call the new indie weird, and I only call it that because it doesn't fit into any simple category Um but like there's a movie called Lace Crater which is another one it's a, like an indie mumblecore movie that seems like it's about it, it's a romance a dysfunctional romance but it involves a a ghost that lives in somebody's uh you know guesthouse and he's just like a guy dressed in burlap and it's sort of like so it's weirdly comical but it's also kind of like very moving and it's about a dysfunctional relationship so it's a romance too and it's like they're kitchen sink movies. And, and that's kind of what I love. I love subgenres. I'm all about categorization, but I also love when I get a movie that I genuinely can't explain to someone why, where it fits and what exactly it is.
0: Oh, that's a really interesting uh, sub subgenre. Hmm, yes, sub, go. sub, subgenre. Yeah, oh, I'll have to go look into that. I love mumblecore movies. Um, there is, I can't remember the name of it, but there's, a, there's like a mumblecore two-person horror movie about like these two people are meeting at their college re- reunion um, and they're there before anyone else and they it's like starts off innocent enough but then it's like she's she's accusing him of having raped her in college
1: hey is it tape with ethan Hawke and no. Uma thurman oh okay because that has a similar theme to that one oh, okay um which i also would recommend oh wait yeah. i wait no i think you're talking it was based on a play i think the one you're yeah, talking about I think, yes i
0: think so maybe
1: yeah which is interesting. Tape is also based on a play and I would recommend that's a, um, that's one by uh, it's Uma Thurman and Ethan Hawke. I think when they were still together and it was directed by, um, oh God, I feel terrible. I uh, can't, Linklater, uh, Richard Linklater, oh. you know, the king of the independent yeah. films and it's uh it's shot digital and it was like early 2000. So it's like very, very raw. Um, but like, yeah. So the one that you liked, yeah, I would definitely check that one out too. Cause it sounds like they have sort of some connective tissue there.
0: Yeah. Um, do you have any favorite horror directors?
1: Uh, I do. Yeah, I have. Well, I mentioned Perry Blackshear earlier. He's the one that directed They Look Like People. I I really like his work because he seems like I'm a big guy. I'm a big guy in the like I love a movie that's just effective and scary. But more than that, I love a movie that's that uses the horror trappings to really dig into a, a subject matter in an interesting way, the social movement or something like that. The first Perry Blackshear movie was about mental illness and friendship. The second one was about tragedy and romance. Um, and I won't even talk about the third one, so I don't want to spoil it. But so Perry Blackshear is, is one that I really like. Um, most of my, I mean, you know, you could always go the list of the the obvious ones. John Carpenter was the person that basically introduced me to horror films because I think Halloween was the second horror movie I ever saw. Um, and I've been chasing that high ever since, you know. So um, but as far as as far as modern horror filmmakers, there's a I would say, let's see who I mean, I like I like Ari Aster. I like um you know who who I love? In it's weird because he just came out with the Meg Two. Is um, excuse me, I love Ben Wheatley, but Meg Two is not a great example of the great of the of the Ben Wheatley's work. Uh, I mean, it's a good movie, but I mean like he did stuff like uh, A Field in England and High Rise and like all of these very specific sort of like darkly comical British horror things that are so you just so uniquely ben wheatley um i would absolutely recommend anybody go out in the earth is a fairly accessible one of his
0: oh um, i did i saw that in theaters yeah theaters that box. was
1: yeah. that was a fantastic theatrical experience actually the uh the the final act of the movie where it goes sort of full psychedelic is absolutely an experience to have in the theater
0: yeah um i haven't seen the meg two yet i haven't seen the meg so i don't know if i would be able to understand the plot of meg two
1: I'll say this. I did not see the first Meg. I went to see the second Meg because it was Ben Wheatley. And I don't think it's going out on a limb to say that you would be fine to go to the second one without having seen the first.
0: Uh, Yeah. I also have to still see The Last Voyage of the Demeter.
1: Yeah. I I really enjoyed that one. That movie is a perfect example of what everybody else in Hollywood should be doing, which is figuring out how to spend their money to make a beautiful film for only $45 million. Because- Well, that's a lot of money to the rest of us. (laughs) That is nothing for a period vampire movie that takes place on an ocean liner. Like that movie was absolutely gorgeous. It was like the heyday of the Hammer horror films as far as the quality of the film. Um, And horror just keeps doing it, man. Like this year in particular, I've been blown away like so many bombs from huge movies. And yet, with the exception of Last Voyage of the Demeter, every other horror film that came out has been a huge hit. You know, I think um, Insidious made like $150 million or something like yeah. that. Yeah, it's wild. Horror just keeps winning. And yet it's still somehow every time they do well, somebody says, oh, is horror back? It's like horror has never left. What are you talking about?
0: Yeah. Um. Well, I heard *The Last Voyage of the Demeter, although it's like uh, people are loving it. It's been like a box office bomb. Is that not the case?
1: Yeah. It's and And the thing is, is like it didn't do nothing. I think it did like maybe between seven and ten million dollars on opening weekend. And that's not great. But the, it got great reviews. It'll probably have a huge life on on home video, as horror films often do. And also, I just I feel bad for it. And frankly, some other tentpoles because it came out like, what is it, a week or two after the Barbie Oppenheimer, uh, you know, the whole like, I, I don't envy any movie having to clean up after that. Like that's if if somebody told me I was coming out two weeks after this, I would just be like, all right, well, I guess that means my career is over because there's no way anybody's going to see my movie.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, Cobweb got totally swamped in yep. the Barbenheimer, but yep. it's coming and out, again. It's coming that's, an-
1: that's another movie in about three years. We're going to hear all of these think pieces about how you know this is why stu- studios are so stupid because if they waited four more weeks and put it out, it probably would have been a huge sleeper hit.
0: Well, yeah, well, they could have just waited and put it out in October because it's a Halloween yeah. horror yeah. movie,
1: it did, and they did the same thing to the Haunted Mansion. Like, why would you put that out in the summer? What are you thinking?
0: Yeah, I don't know. Um, usually they dump movies they don't want anything to do with in like January, February, but oh well. But uh Cowboys Cobweb is coming out on DVD in like a week or two. so Yeah, Blue, Blue yeah Ray, I'm excited because I
1: didn't get to catch it in theaters either.
0: Yeah, I'm going to buy it just to, just to support them. It was, it was good. I didn't get to see it in theater. I had like a screener of it, so I watched it on my laptop because I couldn't put it on my TV. But it was good, even on my laptop. So it was creepy. Awesome. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Uh, So you said at the beginning of our conversation that you taught a course about film and you had the theory that every film is actually a horror film. Can you talk to me more about that?
1: Yes. So I I I have this belief that oftentimes when you take a screenwriting class, the thing that they will talk about is stakes. Right. What are the emotional stakes of this movie there? Your character needs to want something and needs to be trying to achieve something and someone's trying to stop them. That's like the basis of all drama in film. Well, what occurs to me is that in order to have strong stakes, it has to be something that someone needs. And so now we're talking about like existential survival level stuff. Like there are very few films where the stakes are super low. Like, you know, you get your dazed and confused where the plot is like, am I going to sign this form and join the football team or not? Uh, That means I can't smoke weed. Yeah, that's pretty low stakes. But most movies, even if they're not life or death, They're tapping into things that connect to life or death for us, right? When you're rejected by a group of your peers, that taps into that fear you have that you've lost the tribe, right? You are now alone. You are unprotected. You're not going to make it through the world. You know, things like losing a job means losing the money that you make to be able to have a home, to be able to have food that taps into the existential fears of survival. And so what I realized is that we have done a very good job of using entertainment to maybe make everybody a little bit comfortable with the daily terrors. Um, And so I feel like all movies are to some degree, at least like five to 20% horror films, because there's always something in there that we're terrified of. We just have put a nice social mask over it. But it's, you know, the reason people have so much anxiety about their life is because there's a thing that they have, and they're afraid they're going to lose, or there's a thing they don't have, and they're afraid they're never going to get. And, um, and yeah, so my operating theory was always that, the reason people should be watching horror films is because the only one that's not pretending that the fears aren't out there or disguising it as something simpler. Like you know, like they're letting us actually embrace that stuff is terrifying, not just like, Oh, it's an inconvenience to be, uh, to be defeated. And then at the end of the drama, everything will be fine. You know?
0: Uh, that That's so uh, smart and interesting. Um, how is a movie like Ferris Bueller's day off a uh, horror movie?
1: Well, uh, that's a good question. I mean, first of all, it turns out that the principal, uh, it watches inappropriate uh, children's uh, porn in real life. So <laughs> makes you think about, could your real principal be doing that? No, um, I would say the thing that's interesting about that one is is there's a there is a generational divide that's played for humor, but um, uh, Ferris Bueller's best friend and the, rela- the strained relationship he has with his dad was one, I remember when I saw it as, uh, I saw that one younger, probably maybe 13 or so when I saw that. And it was terrifying to me because as someone who was raised in the religion that I was raised, you have your parents have to uh, be proud of you. You have to accomplish what you need to, because if they if you disappoint them and they ostracize you, an entire community goes with them. You know, like within the church, like your parents don't shun you and everybody else is like, don't worry about it. You can still hang out with us. So like everything goes. So when I watch that movie, there is like a sense of the freedom that he felt in, you know, wrecking his dad's car. And then like being able to sort of embrace that he wasn't who his father wanted him to be, but he was his own person was actually terrifying to me because like. I know what that meant. And ultimately that is what happened with my life. I did step away from my parents' belief system and I haven't spoken to them in, you know, in 15, 16 years. So, so like there is that fear that other people probably wouldn't have even tapped into from watching that movie, but it was a very real thing for me.
0: Yeah. Everyone's interpretations of movies and what scares them is so um, subjective to them.
1: Yeah. Which is why I, which is why I think horror is so powerful because a movie can be terrifying to seven people And it would be for seven different unique reasons, which is really fascinating.
0: Yeah. Um, So you're an author, screenwriter, professor and marketer. You've written four books about the history and philosophy of genre film, including a book called Horror Films by Subgenre, a viewer's guide. Can you talk to me more about that?
1: Yes. Well, I'll, so I'll start with that last book because that's my favorite of everything that I've ever written horror films by subgenre. It divides up. It's not all subgenres, but I, we did 75. My wife and I wrote this book. We picked 75 distinct subgenres. And then each section, basically what we did is there's a little treatise on what we consider sort of the psychic pressure point of that particular subgenre. So like for the, for sake of argument, holiday horror, we would talk about, why, why are there so many? What is it about holiday horror that taps into something for people? Then we have a section where we do sort of like exemplary titles, like here are some ones that you would know and you should, uh, you should look out for. And then just a short list at the end of like, here's other titles where we don't go into a, a lot of depth on them. But the reason I love that book so much is because I thought like this was going to be the definitive book on subgenres. We got to 75 I had originally had 125 was my goal but there's even more than that because I realized that a subgenre technically movies fall into multiple subgenres so you can have numerous categories like like I, I personally think basement horror is a subgenre like there is a very specific genre of film that is something bad is in the basement right and that's a whole thing like that's a very specific codified framework and most of those movies have at least 5 or 6 things that happen in them that happen in other basement horror movies. Um, And that was the other section of each chapter that I loved, which is like the three or four tropes of this subgenre that you'll probably see pop up in most of the titles. Um, And that was just a really fun exploration because whether I intended it to be this or not, a lot of screenwriters could get a lot of help from reading a book like that because they'll start to see what are the patterns people expect from the thing that you're writing? So you can either lean into them if you want to be, you know, direct, or you can use those to fool people and go in different directions. You know, they'll be expecting this, so you can do that, you know. So
0: oh, that's really interesting. I have to ask, um, in the in your book, is Jurassic Park in it in one of the subgenres?
1: It is not, only because we in the subgenre book, I try to mostly feature smaller films that people wouldn't necessarily okay. know about within a genre. Like okay. it might've been listed in the, you know, in the section of like other titles to enjoy. Um, but for the the featured titles, I probably wouldn't have done anything that was like, if it didn't, if it was one of the top 100 in the box office, I probably wouldn't have bothered because you likely know about yeah. that one, you know?
0: Yeah, um, true. I was asking only because I'm always trying to convince my dad that Jurassic Park is a horror movie. So.
1: I, I mean, 100%. <laughs> I like, I don't know how you could argue that watching a man get bitten in half by a dinosaur in an outhouse is not a horror film. Like that scene by itself, I feel like signs that warrant.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I was watching Jurassic world recently in the part where all the pterodactyls go into the park and start like grabbing people. I was Mm -hmm. like, this. I was like, people are running and screaming. This is like a horror movie. This is definitely part of a horror movie.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm also, I'm a big tent guy. I am. of. Well, I told you, I think all, all movies are horror movies, but I also believe that there are, horror is, an, I call it a nebulous genre. The boundaries of it are very interesting. It's I call it a dominant genre, meaning you can pair it with any other genre and it is always most a horror film, right? If you have a drama and you put a time machine in it, it's not a drama anymore. It's a sci-fi film. But if you put a time machine, like if Jason Voorhees got his hands on a time machine, it wouldn't be a sci-fi movie. It would be a horror film with science fiction in it, right? Yeah. And it's because it's the dominant genre. So that's what I love about horror is like, it's it's always going to be itself no matter what else you put into it there's western horrors and there's horror comedies but the horror never goes away just because you introduce something else into it
0: yeah have you seen the movie melancholia with Kirsten dunst
1: yes god what a that is a that is a troubled man von Trier. he's a troubled man but he makes some very interesting uh, uh and challenging movies
0: yeah yeah that was a that was a difficult watch it's one of my favorite horror youtubers it's one of her favorite movies I'm like, oh, I, I yeah. can't watch it once. Yeah, and,
1: and he's done it on more than one occasion. He broke my heart with um, uh, what was the one that Bjork was in that I can never at the musical, Dancer in the Dark. Oh, that I was one. Of that. It, it was a melodrama, theoretically, and it has musical sequences in it, but it is it is genuinely one of the most difficult films I ever, uh, ever got through. Um, Bjork never acted again. She said the experience of making the film was so grueling, I think not because of the subject matter as much as the roughness of working with the director, but it was... It was a devastating film. Other people would call it a melodrama. I would say it is absolutely one of the most human horror films I've ever seen.
0: (laughs) I'm still working my way through Lars von Trier's uh, catalog. I've been meaning to watch Antichrist for so long, but I just haven't gotten around to it yet. He's
1: another one of those guys where anything that's in his body of work, it's not quote unquote technically a horror film, except maybe the house that Jack built. But all of them have all of the touch points of, of deeply human horror in them.
0: Yeah, I've heard The House that Jack built is really traumatizing.
1: I still haven't watched it, frankly. Like, if I can't get through his musical melodrama without falling apart, I don't think I want to go into his full-on horror.
0: So is your wife a horror fan?
1: Yes. In fact, um, all almost, I think of all four or five of the books that we've written, we've written together, um, she has more discerning tastes than me, by which I mean, <laughs> um, she likes good horror movies. I like horror movies. I like, I watch a lot of crap. Uh, she lets me watch all the crap and then tell me what, tell her what's worth spending time on because she has other interests as well. So, you know, it saves her going through, I watch a lot of stuff on Tubi because it's free. I don't have to pay for it. And then yeah. I'm like, if it's good, then we can watch it without commercials somewhere else and pay for it. So yeah. that's kind of our process, the way we work. So
0: nice. Um, you'd mentioned also that you're in post-production for your first feature horror film, which is a no budget found footage, uh, movie. Can you tell me about that? Sure. uh,
1: It's called Ask, A-S-K, period, because, you know, because you have to do something to set yourself apart. I put punctuation in my title. Um, And the film, the best I can pitch it, and it hasn't been placed yet, but we're talking to some distributors. But the easiest pitch I can say is it's it's a monkey's paw for a YouTube influencer would be the best way to describe the movie. Um, And I am in it. And when I say no budget, I genuinely mean no budget. It doesn't look cheap, because I, I reverse I did this thing where I reverse engineered things that were actually happening in my life and just wrote them into a story so that it looks like I spent a lot more money on this film that I did. There are location shoots where I went to Las Vegas and Kentucky, but that's just because it's part of my job. I actually had dental surgery done. So I wrote that into the story. So there's a lot of interesting elements in there that you would think <laughs> would have cost more money than they did. But they were all just things that were happening in my life. And I was just like, throw them in there, man. That's good production value. Um So, you know, like I said, we're talking to a couple of distributors, we've got some people that are interested in, we're just a matter of, at this point, of just figuring out, you know, what's the plan for how we're going to release it. So hopefully, soon, I'll be able to make some official announcements.
0: Oh, that's exciting. Um, Any film festivals showing interest that'll be?
1: Well, so that that conversation is I've never done anything in the festival circuit, including actually ever having been to a festival. Um, I am for the first time in my life in a financial situation. Now that I have a job in the marketing industry, I have enough money to be able to attend festivals. So it's absolutely something I want to do. But I'm talking to a couple of distributors to find out what for them, what makes the most sense. Do they want to do a release? Do they want to do a festival run first? Um yeah. Because this is all brand new to me, so I'm I'm really working off of the kindness of others here, being that I've done a lot of writing, I've had other movies made, I had a, a a western that premiered on the Hallmark Movie Channel back in 2014, but I've never made my own movie, so this is this brand new territory for me.
0: Oh, awesome! Well, I hope it gets distributed and I can watch it soon.
1: Fingers crossed. Well, I'll make sure that you see it, even if it doesn't happen soon. I'll make oh. sure you get a
0: Oh, thank you. Um, what festivals are you planning to attend now that you can?
1: Oh, man. Well, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to wait and I'll go to festivals if mine doesn't get in. If we just if we distribute it and we don't go to festivals, then I'll just choose which one I want to visit. But obviously, I'm going to wait in case we do get ours in a festival, because, of course, I want my first festival to be the one that my movie is playing at. So I'm going to wait and see if we get into something first. And whatever that one is, that's obviously going to be the best festival experience of all time. Um, But I love uh, I love Beyond Fest and I love... um, Well, honestly, Beyond Fest is like the big one that was like other people would want to be in Sundance or something like that. Beyond Fest is the one for me. Like that's where all of my favorite weird movies that have been out in probably the last decade have premiered there or at least shown there. So Beyond would probably be like my personal dream festival to go to, especially because great movies premiere festivals and sometimes just sort of disappear like they don't you know people write about them in the festival coverage and then you just never hear about them coming out anywhere Mm -hmm. so sometimes that's the best place to see stuff because who knows if you'll ever get it you know in a real release
0: that's exciting fingers crossed that goes in (laughs) from
1: from your lips to whoever's ears that needs to hear it
0: (laughs) um do you have anything in mind for the next movie that you're going to make
1: I am actually yes. So because I love found footage films, they're so fast, they come together very quickly. If you if you know what you're doing. I have already started on two other projects, only one of which is is, is horror. The other one is more sort of a standard retrospective style documentary about um, a publishing company from the 80s. Um, And it's sort of a it's a fake period piece. So we're shooting some like we actually had to create some eight bit animation to create a fake video game, an Atari game that one of the characters in the movie worked on. So we're having a lot of fun with creating um, uh, fictional crap from the 80s, throwaway crap. Um, So that's one project. And I'm working on another project with a filmmaker and podcaster named Dan Scully uh, out of Philly. It's a film called The One That Got Away. And I can't really explain that one, nor do I want to give too much away because we're still in the process of like. It's not going to fall apart, but you still have that paranoia that it might not. So, uh, you know, I'm superstitious yeah. to the degree that I want to talk about it too much. But it's called the one that got away, and it's really exciting, very crazy project. If we can make it happen, I think uh, this this will be the one that people will remember me for, no matter what else I do. It'll be a it's going to be a wild ride.
0: Awesome. So, an article came out in 2020 that said that horror movie fans were handling lockdown better than non horror movie fans. Why do you think that was the case?
1: Why we handle it better? Well. I can speak very personally to why I would handle it better. I don't know why horror people in general do. I have found that I enjoy the experience of watching a horror movie by myself, uh, sometimes more than seeing with an audience. Now, there are the roller coaster movies that it's great to see. Like, I enjoyed Hell House LLC with people because it's a good jump scare movie and it's great to have a crowd around. But frequently I find that the movies that, that land the deepest for me are the ones that have sort of terrifying existential complications to them And like, that's not always fun to unpack in like a group of friends, you know, when I'm like thinking about my own mortality. So I have found that I actually really enjoy watching a horror movie and then sort of like taking it in and having the time to myself to think about it. Um, So I frequently have that experience of of like desiring to go someplace and have a complicated and somewhat uncomfortable experience in front of a television. So like the pandemic was kind of just an extended version of that. Like we were just watching it happen on TV now, uh, instead of a movie, it was just like stuff that was happening outside of our house. We were seeing on a box in our, in our room. So to me, it wasn't all that different from the way that I experienced fear already.
0: (laughs) That's really interesting. Um, so are you one of those weirdos who likes to go and watch a horror movie by themselves at the movie theater?
1: Yeah. I mean, I would, I have only done it a few times, but that's usually just because there's somebody else that wants to go, you know, they'll go with me, but yeah, I've, I'm, I'm not at all like nervous about, listen, I grew up with very few friends. Most of the things I did in my young (laughs) life I did by myself. So like, of course I'm going to go do a thing I like by myself as opposed to not doing it. Is that the, is that my option is to not do it or to do it by myself? Of course I'm going to do it by myself.
0: Yeah, no, I love doing things by myself, but sitting in a movie theater when it is just me in that movie theater or like me and one other person, it just, it freaks me out. I went to go see Happy Death Day to You at a movie theater in Tel Aviv when I had downtime and it was just me and one older man behind me. And I was like, you know, I can
1: understand that. Like if I was in a movie theater completely alone, I don't think it would bother me, but like one other person there, there does then seem to be like a weird compact between the two of you that you don't want, but you're stuck with now, which is like, it's a journey I'm taking with that guy, even if I don't want to, and I'm stuck with it that I could imagine is a little unnerving.
0: Yeah. And it might be different with me being a woman and like always being on high alert.
1: I have to imagine undoubtedly, like I, I, you know, I'm a I'm a straight white man. I get to blunder through life, paying attention to very little. So I have I have no doubt that it is an utterly different experience that I have not dealt with. But one of the reasons why I feel like horror is so valuable to me. I've I've learned a lot about uh the experience of being a woman in life because of horror films. Like they show you the stuff that dudes don't want to know about, and also most decent movies don't want to talk about. So you learn an awful lot about the burden of other people's lives. That's what I meant when I said that, you know, the idea of that radical empathy. Like sometimes you're not going to see something that other people are experiencing because of who you are in in life. You're never going to experience it unless something shows it to you in an unvarnished capacity. And I think that's another power of horror film is, you know, it puts you in the shoes that even they don't want to be in. But at least now, you know, you know.
0: Yeah. Did you see um, Watcher that came out last year, I believe? Yes.
1: That is a perfect example. There's that one. And then there's a film I saw, a zombie film called It Stains the Sands Red, which is just an allegorical story about a woman who's being followed across the desert by one single zombie. And it's brilliant because it's it so perfectly encapsulates the idea of unwanted male attention. Like this fucking guy just will not leave me alone no matter how hard I try. He's always 10 feet behind me dressed in like this douche suit, even though he's turned into a zombie. It's just like this feels like the night after someone leaves a club and this guy won't fucking stop following them, you know. So yeah, but but that one, um, the one that you're talking about, uh, Watcher, was a much more like down to earth, realistic portrayal. And man, it's it, it was so uncomfortably quiet in passages. Like you're almost hoping for a jump scare to just be able to like release, release the, the tension. tension. Yeah, and that's kind of what the genius of that movie was: is it did not let you get let go of the tension. And that's what that's what they did. It's like, oh yeah, here be in her shoes. That's what it feels like. You know, it was amazing.
0: Yeah. Um, and there's also the beginning of the movie Fresh that came out a couple of years ago where she's walking through the parking lot and there's a guy behind her and she takes out her keys and then it yep. turns out the guy has a baby and he's like not at all a threat, but she doesn't know that.
1: It was, I don't know if it was that film. It was some film that I watched that I started like actively paying attention. Now when I walk, if I'm walking and there's if we're somewhere where there's only a woman, I will cross the street and go on the other side of the street just so that they feel like I'm not being that guy. I know I'm not that guy, but she doesn't. So if I go across the street, that'll probably make her feel better.
0: That's very nice of you. I think John Mulaney has a joke where he was once walking through the subway to get from one train to another and he was behind a woman And he notices that she starts walking faster. So he's like, oh, she must hear the train coming. So he starts walking faster. And that's not at all.
1: And he suddenly became a stalker without his awareness. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (sighs) Um, The only bad experience I've ever had at a movie theater uh, was with a guy who came and sat like right next to me. It wasn't an empty theater, but he came and sat right next to me. And then I could like feel him peering at me. And then he kind of followed me out of the theater after. And I was like, "Mm." So.
1: And that's the thing is like, that's not, you can even chalk that up to like, you know, that's just a dude not paying attention. That was active creepiness.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Man. Uh, I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure that guy would describe himself as a very nice guy.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. It's the girls <laughs> that have a problem. He's such a nice dude. Why doesn't everybody, what doesn't anybody ever want to be around him? Right? I'm sure that's what he puts on. Am I the asshole posts that he does on the? A...
0: Yeah. On a Reddit or yeah. I don't, I don't know what, what, uh, what are the other, other ones? Doesn't matter. Are there any horror movies that you won't watch or that you won't watch ever again?
1: Um, There are, I have made like a hard line against, I won't watch any movie where there was actual violence against animals of any kind. So I've never seen Cannibal Holocaust. Um, I mean, it's not really a problem with modern movies. That doesn't really happen so much anymore. But like once you go back before, say like 1987 and you see a movie like an Italian film, you have no idea if like the thing they're chewing on, that might actually be a lizard they just killed. Um, So I, I steer clear of that. Beyond that, like I said, it, it takes a lot for me to want to watch a cannibal movie. Um, I will watch them if it's a filmmaker that I like or looks like a really unique perspective. I have not watched the um, Human Centipede films. Uh, I'm sure there will be a day where someone convinces me to do it, but I will not put them on on my own. So what I will say is I'm not saying I won't watch it. I'm saying I'm not going to be the guy that watches it by himself.
0: So. <laughs> I've heard that the first one has merit, but the second one is just just gross and all the other sequels are just to, simply to gross you out I haven't seen any of them so I can't speak from yeah
1: experience. like I said I mean eventually I may see it and it would be very funny to me to find out that the first one was like a movie called the human centipede did have like you know real artistic merit to it I'm not saying it doesn't it's just funny to me that a film titled that with that yeah. premise would indeed have that to, that that would be the case
0: Yeah, um, there is a podcast called the Bechdel cast, which goes Mm. through movies and uh, determines whether or not they pass the Bechdel test. Um, And they went through the human centipede one Halloween and they talked about it as though it was like a serious movie. It was hysterical.
1: Yeah, listen, I'm not the guy who believes that there's a separation between high and low art. I think you can find fantastic work in all places. I just yeah. know that I will not be looking for that fantastic work by myself, at least in that franchise.
0: Yeah, that's totally understandable. <laughs> have you ever had any noteworthy experiences seeing a horror movie in theaters?
1: Well, so the most I think the most noteworthy one, it wasn't what happened in theaters. It was what happened after we left. Um I am old enough that I saw um The Blair Witch Project when it premiered in theaters uh, back in 1999. And uh for anyone who wasn't alive during that time, you have to understand it was it was the first viral film, essentially. it's the first film that ever advertised online. It was the first one ever did the gimmick of like, this might be a real documentary. Uh, my friends and I, because we were film nerds, we knew it wasn't real. So we had this great idea. We brought our, our camcorder with us and we were going to... Make a parody. We we're gonna make the very first parody of the Blair Witch Project because no one had seen it yet. And it was gonna be the Blair Witch Project project, which was a bunch of guys who got lost in the woods on their way to try and go see the Blair Witch Project and then what happened to them. Um, we didn't know enough about the movie, so we brought the camera. And we we're like, we're gonna watch the movie and then we're gonna brainstorm and shoot a bunch of stuff on the drive home because it was like an hour-long drive in Texas to get to this place. So we drove, we saw the movie. All five of us, grown men, college age men, were terrified to get out of the van on the drive home after watching the movie. So we never shot any footage because we were literally scared to get out and go into the woods after watching that movie. So, yeah, that one had a huge impact on us for five 22 year old men who wouldn't get out of a car because we were scared of the Blair Witch.
0: Oh, that's hysterical. I wish I was one of those people who the Blair Witch would have scared, even in theaters. I followed all the viral marketing. I was 13 at the time, early adopter of the internet. Um, But yeah, I went in and I was like, yes, it's going to be so scary. And then I went, I left and I was like, I wasn't that scary, but, but I still appreciate it for like what it did for the found footage genre. And it
1: for sure. And I mean, and everything hits people in different ways too. I remember I watched uh, the first time I watched Halloween, I was terrified of it. And then I told a friend of mine about it and he's like, yeah, he was fine. And then I found out the way that he had watched it, the sound was really bad. So you couldn't hear the music. And we watched it again. He was absolutely terrified of it. What I realized was it wasn't actually the movie that terrified him. It was the soundtrack. It was John Carpenter's score that was terrifying to him. He liked the way that the movie looked. It's really well assembled. But it wasn't the cinematography or the shots that scared him. It was the music cues that John Carpenter was using. So you never know what aspect of a film works versus doesn't work for other people. You know, like we were talking about earlier, you know, the subjectivity of horror is fantastic.
0: Yeah, um I have learned about myself that if I think that there is something very tense coming up in a movie like the music is indicating it, it's less scary if I plug my ears, not my eyes. Yep. Because then, yeah. that's
1: so. yeah, fascinating. <laughs> it's fascinating. Well, and also I wonder if there's some, uh, some like evolutionary element to that, you know? You plug your ears because that's the scary part, but you still have your eyes open so you're still safe because you yeah. can, you know, you can scope your uh, you know, your your immediate surroundings. Yeah, or you know, The way I they say, so. I forget what it was, that you still have that thing evolutionarily where there's certain colors that you notice more than other colors because they're connected to things you, you know, back when we had our lizard brains, we were scared of in, in uh, you know, if we saw that color, it meant something was dangerous nearby, you know? Yeah. So uh-huh. I think it's funny, like you still, it was still our human brains react the way it did hundreds of thousands of years ago before we were smart enough and we still don't understand it
0: um what has been your favorite horror movie that you've seen so far in 2023
1: man that almost make me want to run to letterboxd because i i watch an awful lot of um i watch an awful lot of stuff at home as far as like i don't get to the theater as much as i would like to so almost everything i view i view back in my house and i would say let's see the it depends on if you mean like scariest or versus like um most just well favorite. made, right?
0: Just, just one that you liked the most. It doesn't have to be the scariest or the best made. Okay. One so that this one, this
1: most. is going to be an, an obscure one. It's uh, it's called Yule Log. It was a, um, it was on HBO. I, was, I saw it on HBO Max, but I think it was made for Adult Swim. And it looks like it's one of those, you know, those fireplace videos. Uh, you put on at Christmas time, and it's just like a burning log you put on TV to entertain people. Well, it's like that for about two and a half minutes. Then you start to hear talking in the background, and you realize that there's people around the fireplace, and you're hearing a little bit of their conversation. And then, I I mean, I don't want to give much away, but it's a feature length film that you thought was like a five minute Yule log short. And at a certain point that zooms out, you find out that a person is filming one of these videos when there's a home invasion that happens people come into the house while this is being shot and so you're actually watching you're witnessing stuff happening in real time that was not intended to be captured by a camera so it starts feeling like it's a found footage home invasion film but then and i can't spoil it because it's not even possible to describe it goes into places you could not even get your head around like some of the craziness that happens um I literally I'll just say I don't know if it's if it's still on HBO Max but if some if you haven't seen it go look up the movie Yule Log. It was made by the same guy who made there was a very strange short film a few years ago from ultimate uh, from uh from Adult Swim called Too Many Cooks and it was just like a parody of the opening credits of a sitcom but it goes on for like 10 minutes and there's a slasher in it and it gets really crazy. Um that same filmmaker made this movie uh Yule Log. It's also called The Fireplace. Um but that probably it was it was made the end of last year. I saw it in July. I mean, uh, January of this year. So it just makes the cut that it was still part of this year. But I, I thought it was phenomenal and bizarre, beyond description. I, I would love to hear what other people think of it because very few people have seen it.
0: Oh, that's really interesting. I'll have to, I'll have to put see if it's still on HBO Max. Uh, but what's your favorite home invasion horror movie?
1: Home invasion. So. That's a good one. I have this theory that home invasion movies are the movies that need the least amount of dialogue because you immediately understand what's so terrifying about them. So you don't really have to write much dialogue. And the one that I think does that almost most effectively is The Strangers. There is so little actual spoken dialogue in The Strangers, and yet it's incredibly effective. Um, But I also would say Brian Bertino, the guy who made The Strangers, also made a found footage film I love that not many people saw. It came and went really quickly called Mockingbird. And the film, basically the premise is at the beginning of the film, these people all get boxes on their porch. And when they open the boxes, there's a camcorder inside that is recording that they can't shut off. And then the people who have these cameras suddenly start getting attacked by mysterious people from outside. And they're told basically if they shut the camera off or they try to stop recording that they'll all be killed. Um, And it's like three or four different houses. So you're kind of watching home invasions, but multiple homes at the same time. It's really interesting.
0: Oh, That's creepy. Are you... Looking forward to The Strangers, I think it's three movies that they're making or a series or something. I'm going to say
1: this. I'm definitely going to check it out. I'm I'm uh curious because Rennie Harlan is making them. And Rennie Harlan is the guy I know from Die Hard 2 and Cutthroat Island. So I'm very curious to find out what that guy's aesthetic will look like in a franchise like The Strangers, which was such a pared down minimalist scare fest. I'm curious like honestly, just out of morbid curiosity to see what that would look like. So, but I was even, I mean, I liked, uh, was it Prey at Night, the sequel? I thought that was a very interesting, is a different kind of film, but it had some fantastic set pieces and it had a really interesting energy and a great cast. So, I mean, I feel like that's such a, a ripe framework for a story that I'm, I'm, you know, until I see it and it's bad, it's not going to convince me not to keep going back, you know?
0: <laughs> so on the flip side, what horror movie are you most looking forward to seeing in the rest of 2023?
1: oh, see, this is where we find out that I'm not paying enough attention to what's coming out in the rest of 2023. I don't actually know what else is coming out. I don't, oh. like all the ones that I wanted to see hit, like Last Voyage of the Demeter and Insidious were the last two that I really like knew about. Because, um, you know, they publicize the summer stuff quite a bit. Um, but I mean, you know, I'm interested in, uh, cautiously optimistic about the new Exorcist movie. Um, I was one of what I thought was not going to be a minority, but tends to be a minority that did not love what um green did with the halloween films i thought that the final halloween en- halloween ends was it was fucking bananas but i really enjoyed it like it was it was the biggest swing you could possibly have in a franchise that has a very established thing he went as far away from that thing as you could i enjoyed it a lot of people didn't my hope would be that we get well for me it would be that we get a very similar different take on the exorcist system we got originally um, but I don't know that that would make him any other people happy. I would enjoy it, but I don't know how well that's going to do for the, like the, you know, the length of the franchise, if it doesn't do well, the first one he doesn't get his other two. So, but I, I, I'm cautiously optimistic about that one.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm definitely going to go see it. Cause I find the first exercise kind of boring, but I've heard that it's better in a theater setting because of the surround sound and stuff.
1: So Yeah. Well, the, the first time I saw it, it was in theaters. It was in a re-release. So, yeah, I can't speak to what would the experience was like having seen it on home home viewing first. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I mean, that's why uh, to see this one, then I guess too, you know, make sure that the first experience is as big as you can make it.
0: Yeah. Are there any horror movies that you love that people generally don't like?
1: Uh, let's see the, that they don't like. There are movies that I like that people don't like. Most of them are not horror films. I like Hudson Hawk and people hate that film. Um, But as far as horror films go, the only one that I can mention and I wouldn't go like I'm not going to go to the mat for this movie because I don't think it's brilliant, but I do not get the vitriolic hate that people have for the remake of Nightmare on Elm Street. I think there are a couple of really solid performances in that in that series. Um, I don't think it's a great movie, but they did some pretty interesting stuff. I love the idea of the micro naps, the idea that like when you become so exhausted, you start to nod off without control and you don't know that it's happening until the dream is upon you. I thought that was a very clever idea. Um, and I think that guy is a great director. I think the problem you could see clearly that that was a focus grouped film and the pieces were changed, you know, before it was released based on bad, um, bad audience reception. So I feel like that was a movie that was not done the justice it deserved, certainly, but I know, I mean, I can't, I can't get, so having made a film now, I can't get that upset about someone accomplishing that. Like it was not a bad movie. You didn't like it, but it wasn't a bad movie. Like the hype, the hyperbole that has come with the internet discussing movies is maybe one of the great bad things to happen to film generally. Like, I can't believe anyone in the world would say a Star Wars movie is the worst thing that they've ever seen. It's like, you just haven't seen enough movies then. There are so many bad movies in the world. You don't know what an actual bad movie is, if that's what you think bad movies are. So, But yeah, I would say Nightmare on Elm Street is one of those ones where I just I continually scratch my head about what makes people so angry about it.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I've only watched it once. I just found it incredibly boring. Um, but I love Kyle Gallner, who's in it.
1: Yeah. Um, well, and, and to me, that was the, that's the biggest takeaway for that film. I think Rooney Mara is fine, but I think Kyle Gallner, I've never seen Kyle Gallner not deliver a great performance. So even in a yeah. mediocre movie, the movie's still kind of worth seeing. He's sort of like, not in any other capacity, but like John Goodman in the respect that if you hear John Goodman in, is in a movie, you know that you'll at least get John Goodman out of that movie. And that's yeah. why it's worth seeing. That's how I feel about Kyle Gallner.
0: Yeah. Did you see him in a uh, Mother May I?
1: I haven't yet. That one. And then there's another new one. Is it called The Passenger. Yeah, I haven't um, seen that one yet,
0: but I've seen I saw Mother May I at a festival last year and it was was really creepy. Yeah,
1: I'm so he's he's interesting because for a very long time he was kind of stuck in because he's, you know, sort of traditionally handsome guy. He got stuck in very specific roles. And it seems like there's a certain point where he just said, no, I want to try really fun, weird, fucked up stuff for a while. And uh, and it seems like he's really having a good time with it, you know, and I'm all the better for it. I think his I think his recent output has been fantastic.
0: Yeah, he's great. Um, if you could remake one horror movie, which one would it be?
1: There is a movie I not only want to remake, I have written a spec script for <laughs> um, it. Is, it's technically sort of science fiction in addition to horror, but it's a Stephen King uh, property. So I think that counts as horror. Uh, there was a series in the '90s after *The Stand* came out, and it—they were huge hits. They made *The Langoliers*. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of it or you've seen it. It is not, it did not have a, a good shelf life. It was not well received at the time and they've never like done a, an HD master of it or anything, but the premise is basically a, a bunch of different disparate people that are on a plane, they're flying and they fall asleep on the plane. And then they're woken up by this little blind girl who's crying because she can't find her aunt. They all wake up and they find there's about 12 of them left on a plane that is otherwise entirely empty, Ooh. including the, the pilots are gone. So only the 12 people that woke up on this plane are still there They have no idea what happened, how they got into this circumstance, like did the plane land and everybody was taken out of the plane? Like what happened? And that's basically the central mystery of the story. It's one of the greatest hooks for a story I've ever seen. Was not executed well at all. And there's a very sort of like early 90s TV cast vibe to the movie and the budget. Um, it would be an It would blow the roof off of a place if you made it with the kind of effects you could get now in a solid cast. So that's the one. Not only would I remake it, but my hope is I have the script ready. Anytime anybody's <laughs> gonna, anybody wants to, uh, you know, throw any money my way, that'll be the one that I, I you know, ask them about.
0: Oh, amazing! Um, so my last question is: If you had to spend quarantine with one horror villain, who would it be?
1: So this is the one question I studied up on I, when I listened to your episodes, and and so here's the conclusion I came to, and I don't think anybody else would come to this one, but I chose Hannibal Lecter from the TV series Hannibal, played by Mads Mikkelsen, and the reason for that is is a couple. First of all, he only he only eats the rude. I feel like like he very specifically only goes after certain kinds of people, and I feel like I'm not I'm not the vibe of person that would, he would consider to be an enemy. I think he'd think I was fine. I'm definitely beneath him, but like, I'm not the kind of person that he thinks would be worth killing. Secondly, he's a fantastic host. He's a great dresser. He throws awesome parties. Um, the fact that I'm a vegetarian again, makes me safe from the food, right? Because he's not going to accidentally, I'm not going to accidentally eat any people. Like I only do vegetarian dishes. So I feel like that would be ideal for me. Plus, like just on a meta level, who doesn't want to hang out with Mads Mikkelsen all day long if it's at all possible to do? So he's he's my choice.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. Do you want to tell everyone where they can find you and your books um, online? Yes.
1: Uh, so the best place to find me online, my handle is almost always CK Vanderkay, which is my last name. And it's K-A-A-Y. There's two A's in there because I'm Dutch and we like to make it confusing. Um, so you can find me CK Vanderkay at uh, Twitter, um, I'm also on, uh, TikTok as storyfication. Um, but then for the books, if you just go to Amazon and you put in my name, Chris Vanderkay, um, all five of my nonfiction books and my one fiction book and a couple of the other books that I've co-written with other people will all pop up there. Um, if you're trying to pick one to start with, to see if you're interested in my stuff, I think the, um, horror films by subgenre is a great book, but I would also recommend spoiler alert. It's a, a book that we put together. It's a coffee table style book that just, does sort of like a, it's almost like a schematic of some of your favorite, your 25 favorite Hollywood genres and sort of it's loving satire on the very clear tropes and cliches that pop up in all kinds of um, uh, Hollywood frames. You know, like like we have a, a heist movie and we have a prison drama and we have a slasher movie. So like all the great cliches from all of those movies get um, poked fun at lovingly in that book. So I think one of those two is a great place to start.
0: Awesome. Well, I will include links to all of those in the show notes. And thank you again so much for your time.
1: It has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
0: That's it for this week's episode of Who's There? I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Chris Vanderkay. And thanks again to Chris for coming on. I'll leave links on where you can find him and his books in the show notes. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Who's there PC. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or horror movie recommendations, I'd love to hear from you. Shoot us an email at whostherepc@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Until next time, stay scary and never ask, who's there?